It's Friday, March 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Biden has held his first news conference after 65 days in office and took questions on the surge of migrants at the border, foreign policy questions about China and North Korea, and also about the filibuster in the Senate. Biden also set a new vaccine goal of 200 million shots in the first 100 days. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, joins us for a breakdown of how it went. Next, we are still monitoring the campaign to unionize in an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Mail-in voting is still underway, and working conditions at these warehouses are in the spotlight. Meanwhile, employees at other locations are gathering signatures, discussing potential strikes, and consulting with unions about other campaigns. Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the increasing pressure that Amazon is facing during this union vote. Finally, AstraZeneca and their vaccine has been on a roller coaster ride this week as we learned their shot is 76% effective against symptomatic COVID-19. On Monday, it was 79%. Then U.S. officials said they were using outdated data and finally came back with a correction. Karen Weintraub, healthcare reporter at USA Today, joins us for the difficult rollout of this vaccine. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're consulting with our allies and partners, and uh, there will be uh, responses if they choose to escalate. Um, We will respond accordingly. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thanks for having me. President Biden had his first news conference. Nothing new or really groundbreaking, I don't think, came out of it. But it was the first one. I think we were 65 days in office so far, and he had the first one. First off, because there was a lot of concern going into it, there was going to be any gaffes by the president, if he was going to stumble, and then how the media was going to treat him also. You know, this is obviously coming after the contentious relationship that President Trump had with the media. So, Julia, Mm -hmm. let's start there. Any big gaffes, and how was he with reporters? You know, for the most part, there weren't really any big gaps. We know that on the issue of the filibuster, CNN's Caitlin Collins seemingly tripped him up a little bit when he seemed to suggest maybe more than he normally would that the filibuster is archaic and that he would like to see it go by the wayside. So that was very interesting. But a big takeaway, and I think a criticism that many members of the press have been facing, is that there was not a question on the coronavirus pandemic. Instead, we saw reporters focusing on issues like the filibuster, gun control, and obviously immigration. And we know that Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, is actually, you've seen him retweeting and other members of Biden's staff retweeting that criticism of the press for not talking about the global pandemic. Obviously, Biden wanted to be talking about the global pandemic. He announced in that press conference that he is going to increase his original um, 100 million shots in in his first 100 days to 200 million shots in his first 200 days or 100 days. He would obviously be wanting to talk about that more. Instead, he was forced to confront the issue about a lack of unity in Congress, as well as a growing crisis U.S. southern border. There was a lot of time spent on immigration and the crisis at the border, migrant children there and overcrowding. How did that go? Because there was things he blamed the previous administration for, dismantling some of the processes there and saying we're in a rebuilding process, trying to get back up there. And he did also commit to more transparency there 
but on his own timeline. He said, not yet, when we're ready, when I get my plan implemented, basically. Absolutely. This is a tough issue and was a tough issue for Biden to really have to confront. Because remember, during the 2020 presidential campaign, he spent so much time, along with the other Democratic candidates, hammering President Trump for the same situation at the border, for seeing unaccompanied minors being kept in really bad conditions, for having to deal with this growing number of people arriving at the border. So we've seen that his administration has been very slow to call it a crisis. They have used the term situation, despite the fact that they have already sent FEMA down there to deal with it. But I think Biden was very careful not to necessarily lay blame 100 percent to President Trump's administration. But there was a notable moment when he was asked about the policy and a reporter talked about how they talked to a family that said, look, we talked to this family that arrived at the border and they said they came because they thought that the Biden administration would be more sympathetic and empathetic to their cause. And that seemingly made him a little emotional, but he did not want to necessarily give away that his immigration policy is why there is this growing crisis at the border. What did we hear when it came to foreign policy? China and competition with China came up, troops leaving Afghanistan. There's a May 1st deadline set by the Trump administration. He said we probably won't meet that. And then North Korea, they've launched a series of missiles recently. President Biden said we would respond accordingly if things get escalated. Yeah, on the issue of North Korea, that's very interesting because this is the first missile test from North Korea of the Biden administration. And it is, in a way, I think Pyongyang really trying to test Biden's temperament on this issue. And he said they would respond accordingly. So he's really trying to put up this tough front from Washington against Pyongyang. I think you also saw that with China as well. We've seen that relations between China and the United States have definitely intensified in not a great way in the past couple of weeks. We saw that um, Secretary of State Blanken really head-to-head in person with his Chinese counterpart in Alaska last week. So that's definitely something the Biden administration is very well aware of. And as I mentioned, too, just the Afghanistan thing, I think we have 2,500 troops there right now and about 6,500 NATO troops who are seeing what the U.S. is going to do before they move any troops. He said that uh, he can't see them being there next year, but still probably won't hit that May 1st deadline. In terms of Afghanistan, I think, you know, this is obviously an area where Biden has been focused before as vice president. And right now, I think there's a risk of the Taliban really gaining momentum and gaining influence and power in Afghanistan. So this is some an area where Biden wants to be extremely, extremely cautious to not leave a big vacuum like what happened during the Obama administration, really, in Iraq, where when they pull up troops out of Iraq, you saw that vacuum emerge and you saw ISIS emerge. At the same time, though, we know that these long wars or conflicts that the United States has been involved in in the Middle East and Western Asia, they're deeply unpopular with Americans. So it's a very, very difficult situation that the Biden administration finds itself in there. 65 days in, this is the first news conference. Looking forward, they already asked President Biden, if he's going to be running in 2024, he said he expects to. Previously, he'd said he, you know, he might only stick around for one term. That was never set in stone. But he says that he would expect Vice President Kamala Harris to be his running mate also. We know that Biden is the oldest 
president ever elected. We know that the presidency, no matter what age you are, is a physically and mentally taxing job. So after four years of it, you know, it's understandable why someone that old would want to retire, would want to step back. However, he's giving no indication of that. However, I think this week with him handing the situation at the border and giving um, control of that to Vice President Harris, that shows that he is still very much trying to get her ready to take that leadership role. The question is, though, when she'll be able to take on that mantle of leading the Democratic ticket. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think organizing at Amazon and and the sort of outspokenness by employees is something that we can expect to you know, continue seeing and, and, and possibly seeing in, in stronger numbers. Joining us now is Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sebastian. Thanks for having me. I've been very interested in this Amazon story about this uh, unionization effort in Bessemer, Alabama. Currently, right now, workers are submitting all their mail-in ballots in this union election, basically. It ends on March 29th, so we still have a little bit of time to go. But, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. All eyes are really on what's happening right now because it only has the potential to spur other unionization efforts across the country for Amazon. And we're kind of seeing that already. There's uh, tons of employees signing petitions now to change working conditions at their warehouses. There's employees reaching out to unions to see if any possible campaign efforts can happen there. Uh, So, Sebastian, tell us what we're seeing here. This has become a really big deal. I mean, when you have the president of the United States weighing in on it, you know, you've kind of reached a certain level of of attention. And I think why we why we saw that is, you know, Amazon is obviously one of the biggest, and most powerful companies in the world. It's the leading online retailer. And the pandemic especially, I think, put a lot of people's attentions on the working conditions of essential employees and the kind of lives that they live inside these warehouses. And so I think you saw workers kind of capitalize, in a sense, on people paying more attention to that and kind of drawing you know, attention to that with Amazon and, and specifically at this facility in, in Bessemer. And, of course, it's a big deal, too, because... Amazon doesn't have any employees that are unionized, not even in their corporate ranks. So I think everybody's watching very closely because of that. And what we've seen is we've seen for a number of years, you know, some organization going on. Uh, Even last year, there were walkouts at some facilities. And, you know, there's been somewhat of an increased activity around the Bessemer uh, situation because I think a lot of people are kind of waiting to see what happens there, a lot of workers, but also you know, in their own right, workers are kind of organizing already in the, in the best way that they feel is appropriate. Something that I've learned through my reporting is, you know, every facility is different. Every every worker group is different. And some groups might think that it's best to do a strike. Uh, another group, uh, you know, that I talked to in Chicago has pressured the company, you know, without any union representation, just on their own, forming petitions and that sort of thing. And they've had some success within the past. So I think what you're seeing is different types of employees going about this route in different ways. And while we might not see another formalized union push like we see in Bessemer, I mean, we might or we might not. We have to see. I think 
organizing at Amazon and, and the sort of outspokenness by employees is something that we can expect to you know, continue seeing and, and, and possibly seeing in, in stronger numbers. Right. And, and, you know, speaking to that kind of whole thing about throughout the pandemic, it's really shined a light on Amazon. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, the United States relied so heavily on Amazon to get our deliveries, other companies too, but, you know, Amazon in particular too, they, to get our deliveries, get our, our supplies, all that stuff. And these workers were there throughout the pandemic working very hard. You know, a lot of them are the reason why they're fighting is because of, you know, the policies there, the, the quotas, the rate at which they have to prepare packages, break times, shift schedules, classic working condition stuff is what they're fighting. And to your point about how it's blown up so much, the president spoke about it. Senator Bernie Sanders is going to Alabama to meet with the Amazon workers there. Uh, you know, he's going to be pushing for the unions. And this thing really has just exploded. Some of these issues are things that these workers have been kind of, you know, outspoken about for a while. But I think it's uh, the sort of situation where there's kind of that momentum in, in, in that way. And again, the pandemic definitely put a, a spotlight on it. I remember just around a year ago, there were really high profile walkouts and that employee in New York that got fired, that got you know a lot of attention you know, about, you know, about it. And so I think it, it's the sort of thing where it's a kind of, in a way, an easy target for people to concentrate on it being, again, Amazon, being one of the biggest companies in, in the world. And I think that, the Bessemer situation is will be interesting to see how it plays out because if they are able to, you know, kind of achieve this, well, you do see some of these kind of policy changes inside Amazon. And they've, of course, they have made changes throughout the pandemic in, in terms of giving workers, you know, whether it was extra pay for a period of time or changing some processes at the warehouses in terms of safety. You know, they have done those sort of things. But in terms of work pace, and, you know, hourly pay and, and benefits and number of breaks. So those are sort of things that I think we're kind of all looking out for to see if they change and could they change through this process, which would be pretty significant, especially especially the rate of, you know, how fast the packages have to be completed. That's not only at the heart of what workers are concentrating on in terms of their message, but that's a very important thing of how Amazon does what it does, right? right? Gets our packages to us so quickly is because the pace of their work is extremely high. You know, they're doing exactly. hundreds of packages per hour for 10 hours a day. So it's intriguing in that way as well. Sebastian Herrera, technology reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We think this is the right ballpark now, somewhere between 69 and 76 percent. We've heard lots of different numbers, but in any case, it's a very effective vaccine. It certainly meets the FDA's standards. They had said they would accept any vaccine that was more than 50 percent effective. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, healthcare reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, being on with us uh, and following this story of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Brief recap, on Monday, we got numbers from AstraZeneca saying that their vaccine was 79% effective. This is coming from the U.S. trials. Just a day later, U.S. officials said, hey, they might have used outdated data. We didn't have a full data set for there. It caused this kind of whole, you know, unsolicited drama, really, 
and questions about AstraZeneca. So they came back. They said, we're going to provide more numbers. And just as we spoke about the other day, the numbers are still very good. So it went from 79% down to 76% efficacy rate. Karen, tell us a little bit more about the new numbers and what we were missing the first time around. You've got it exactly right. There is only a 3% difference here, so not clear why there was such a kerfuffle over it. But basically, as you said, this is just a a very good vaccine as far as we can tell, uh, with maybe some questionable communications issues from the company. Yeah, I I saw a headline and uh, it just kind of struck me. AstraZeneca got their vaccine right, but the rollout has been disastrous. And unfortunately, that's just been the case, you know, across the world, really. In Europe, we saw the stuff with early uh, stuff about saying it's not effective for older people, obviously the blood clot issue. None of that really panned out. So the rollout has been pretty bad. We did get some numbers from AstraZeneca regarding those over 65 and how effective the vaccine was too, though. I was going to say that that it wasn't that the numbers were bad in Europe. It's that they didn't include older people in the studies over there. And that's why a lot of people were looking to this study in the U.S. to see, did this vaccine work as well with older people? Older people have less active immune systems than younger ones. And some vaccines, like the flu vaccine, somebody over 65 usually takes that with, with a booster, with an adjuvant, a, different, a slightly different vaccine than a younger person would take. So there was concern with the COVID vaccines that there might need to be something like that as well. But so far, we haven't seen any difference between younger and older people with the vaccines. This one is 85% effective, even more effective, apparently, with older people than younger ones. They said there could be a few more changes coming, not enough to really change that number, overall number. I guess there was 14 more cases of possible or probable infection that they have to examine. So the FDA is about to do a deep dive into these numbers. As soon as the company applies for authorization with the FDA, they will look very carefully at these numbers and they could change a little bit based on the FDA's calculations. But we think this is the right ballpark now, somewhere between 69 and 76 percent. We've heard lots of different numbers, but in any case, it's a very effective vaccine. It certainly meets the FDA's standards. They had said they would accept any vaccine that was more than 50 percent effective. So uh, it's a good vaccine and hopefully will help uh, with the rest of the world. This is a vaccine that's relatively easy to distribute and relatively inexpensive. So it's been considered a real possibility for helping uh, fight the virus across the world. Yeah. What does it look like for the United States, though? What's the plan for AstraZeneca, at least for us? Because we bought a bunch of doses. I know there was talk about sending some over to Mexico and everything. The campaigns with uh, Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson have been ramping up. So how do we expect AstraZeneca to play out here in the States? So we have bought 300 million doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine. So that's a lot. And we already have enough with the other vaccines to more than cover the U.S. population. The government has released 4 million doses to Mexico and Canada of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Both of those countries have approved the vaccine or are allowed to use it so they can use it now with the theory that they could return it to us later if if we need it later on once it has been approved or authorized here. In terms of, of its use in this country, it's kind of unclear at the moment. It's possible that we will say we don't need any of these 300 million doses and give it to places around the world that do. The White House has been hesitant to say that yet. I think they want to make sure that Americans are covered, that the promised production comes through on the other vaccines before they pass around this one. Karen Weintraub, healthcare reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.